1: You want to know the single most useless thing you can do in this business? Well, that's easy. The most useless thing you can do as an investor is to worry about what everybody else is worrying about. The flip side of this, though, is also true. There's no point in getting excited about something that everybody else is eagerly anticipating. Why? Because when the vast majority of investors agree that something's going to happen, well, that thing tends to be already priced into the stock market. While the real economy moves at its own sedate pace, you gotta borrow money to build out equipment, then use that equipment to manufacture your goods, then transport them to retail outlets, then wait for the customer to come along and buy them, the stock market has no such limitations. Stocks don't quite travel the speed of light. Well, how about the speed of thought? Well, they come pretty close. So the moment of preponderance of hedge fund and mutual fund managers decide that the economy's slowing or speeding up or flatlining stocks start trading, like that's the case instantaneously. Usually it takes some time to build that kind of consensus, which is why you rarely see these moves happening all at once. But once the big institutional portfolio managers are on the same page about something, well, you can pretty co- be confident that it's baked into the averages. And when I say instantaneously, I mean that week. It'll happen that week. Now, this is some basic economic one-on-one stuff. Now, I don't have a ton of use for economists as a profession. They tend to take a pretty ivory tower approach to the discipline, meaning they have all sorts of models for how the world's supposed to work. Also, they can be very boring. Sorry. But they rarely let the empirical facts get in the way of a good story. If the data conflicts with the model, economists have a bad habit of throwing away the data, not the model. However, as long as you keep that caveat in mind, economics can have some very useful concepts for investors. One of these concepts is what's known as the efficient markets hypothesis. This theory says that at any given moment, stock prices already reflect all the relevant information in the universe that's out there at that moment. And when some new piece of data comes out, stocks immediately adjust to reflect the new reality. You'll often hear index fund purists citing this theory to explain why it's impossible for stock pickers to get any kind of edge. Because whatever you know about a company should already be baked into its share price. Can't get an edge. As far as they're concerned, markets are so efficient that investing in individual stocks is basically the same as gambling. If everything you know is already priced in, That means your homework is meaningless, and the only thing that can push a stock higher or lower is some new piece of information that nobody knows. It has to be something totally unknown, because if anyone did know, they would have already acted on it already. Ergo, it would be built into the share price. That means under this theory, the only things that can move stocks are unknown unknowns, to use the parlance of former Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld. And if you're merely betting on unknown unknowns, well, you might as well just play roulette. It's more fun. Again, that's why index fund advocates adore the efficient market hypothesis. This theory tells them that it's impossible for individual investors to consistently beat the averages. So if you want equity exposure, the only smart way to do it is by putting your money in a nice, low-cost index fund that mirrors the S&P 500. As anyone who watches the show regularly knows, I I have no beef with that. Beyond meat, beef, whatever. I have no beef with index funds. In fact, I think they're the best way for the vast majority of people to invest in the market. I've said that. Almost since day one of the show, even if you've got the time and the inclination to pick individual stocks and manage your own portfolio, you should still direct a big chunk of your savings into a cheap S&P 500 index fund. It's the safest way to give yourself equity exposure and it's perfect for your retirement accounts. Think of it like this. It's hard to be a good individual stock investor. It takes real work, but it's incredibly easy to be an index fund investor, right? Putting money in a 401k or an IRA, index fund territory, you can gradually contribute over time with every paycheck. And as long as you believe the U.S. economy keeps growing over the long haul, you can leave that money in index fund and check in. It might be once or twice a month. And I know people can use the IRA for stocks. That's fine. But I'm saying index fund, index fund, index fund for retirement. But get back on track. This idea that you can't possibly beat the market because the efficient market hypothesis tells us that stocks are already perfectly valued. i got to tell you something. Here's what I feel about that one. It's bogus. And the people who who presume it, they know nothing. Putting aside the fact that I did consistently beat the averages nearly every year at my old hedge fund, giving my clients a 24% compound annual return after all fees over the course of 14 years, the simple truth is that markets are not perfectly efficient. They're often irrational. They ignore things and make mistakes and misvalue information every single day. And that's a major reason why you can make money picking stocks. These anomalies are good for your portfolio. Ironically, this core dogma of free market economics is a lot like communism. It makes a lot of sense in theory, but it doesn't necessarily work in in life. So why the heck did I bring up the efficient markets hypothesis in the first place if it's such a boneheaded idea? Because even if it's not strictly speaking true empirically, it, well, we know for a fact that markets are all kinds of inefficient. All. And it's still a very useful idea. As an ironclad law of the ironclad law of the universe, it can't help us. As a rough guideline, it can lead us in the right direction. Markets do try to be efficient. They aspire to efficiency. When a company reports a fantastic quarter, its stock will immediately spike because that's the kind of data that can get baked in very quickly. When the Federal Reserve changes policy, telling us that it won't be raising interest rates as previously planned, that's huge news and it takes longer to bake, as we found out at the end of 2018 when the Fed got cold feet about its continual rate hike policy. That took weeks and weeks to work its way through the averages. Stocks that benefit from lower rates, and there are a lot of them, will instantly soar. But it can take days or weeks or even months for the averages to fully reflect the new normal because it takes time for portfolio managers to reposition. They can't just go in and out. They have too much money under management. We're talking about huge slugs of stock here. No hedge fund or mutual fund is going to buy or sell them all at once. Sooner or later, though, we do reach a new equilibrium. So let me give you the mad money version of the efficient markets hypothesis. Call it kind of sort of efficient markets corollary. When there's a widely held consensus view about something, anything, be it positive or negative, you have to assume that view is already being discounted by the market. So when everyone's feeling euphoric about the strong job market, well, that's possibly baked into stock prices already. When everybody's worried about a temporary Fed mandated slowdown, it's probably baked in. When investors are hunkering down in fear of a bad earnings season, don't expect stocks to get slammed on disappointing numbers. People already anticipate a disappointment. In short, when all the talking heads and journalists and media-friendly money managers are telling you to be afraid of the same thing, you don't need to be afraid. Let everybody else worry for you. From the stock market's perspective, the fact that most investors believe something's going to happen means that, in a way, it's happened already. Yet, it's so easy to fall prey to the groupthink when you're managing your own money. Emotions are infectious, like communicable disease. When you see all sorts of experts coming on television and saying the same thing while the newspapers print similar stories and your friends echo this stuff back to you, it's only natural to assume it must be true. And you know what? Very often it is true. But that doesn't mean it's going to move stock prices. By the time we get any kind of real consensus on an issue, that move is probably over. You missed it. The bottom line, if you want to be a better investor, don't tear your hair out fretting about the same thing as everybody else. Instead, you should worry about the things other people don't seem to care about, because the real threat is the one you don't see coming. Dave in
2: Virginia, Dave. Hi, Jim. How are you doing?
1: I am doing well, Dave. How about you?
2: Good. Yeah, uh, I'm from Virginia. Uh, I was born in Plymouth Meeting, and uh, I was actually raised in Summit.
1: Oh my! We are do- we are doppelgangers. Yep. I love that.
2: four-puppers. Um. We, uh, we want to leave half our assets with a certain minimum amount to our two children um, and retire on the other half. Uh, they were both in their mid-20s, and we will uh, adjust our lifestyle if we have to in, right. order, in order to leave that minimum. Um, now, most money managers would say that at our age, in a normalized interest, interest rate environment, we should be about 60% in stocks, and the kids should be around 85%. So without setting up new trusts, shouldn't we invest the minimum amount as if it were their money now, and if so, allocate stocks half at 60% and half at 85%?
1: Um, I think the uh, 85% all-in for younger people is definitely right. For you, I'm assuming you're my age, I think 60 to 65, we'd certainly feel like that we're going to go longer than the actuarial table, so I prefer always to put a little bit more stock in there than most things. Um, if you wanted to go 90 for 20-year-olds, I would bless that, too. we got to have those long-dated assets in there to make a lot of money over time, and thank you for the kind comments. Let's go to Frank in New York. Frank!
2: Yes, Jim, thank you very much. This is first time in uh, a long time. Okay. Uh, i like. I like to ask you, uh, what's the difference between general stocks and over-the-counter stocks? And oh. should I view them differently?
1: No, I mean, they used to be very different. One was a, a bid and ask that was done by different, you know, I, with my day when I was at Goldman, we had over-the-counter was a little bit different from the listed. These days, it really have blended. I wouldn't worry about it. Just stay focused on the fundamentals. All right, hey, listen up. Don't sweat what they're all sweating. Pay attention to what others are ignoring. Well, man, money tonight. To trade or not to trade? That is the question. I'll tell you how to come out on top by pointing the different ways to approach investing. Then feel like the market's sometimes speaking a different language? I'll tell you how to decipher hidden messages in the tape. And the next time you see a hot IPO, well, should you consider buying the company or not? Not so fast. I'll tell you why. Stay with Kramer.
3: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question?
0: podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Investing isn't one size fits all. Every investor has a unique style. That's why TD Ameritrade offers two different mobile apps. There's TD Ameritrade Mobile, which lets you manage your portfolio with streamlined simplicity. Or Thinkorswim Mobile, which gives you tools you need for more advanced trades and in-depth analysis. Visit tdameritrade.com apps to find the one that's right for you. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com slash apps.
1: Like I told you before the break, when you pack into a crowded trade, you're playing with fire. If everybody's on the same page about a stock or even a whole sector, that means the easy money has already been made, people! doesn't mean you can't profit from something obvious. That does happen. But when you're late to the party, you're going to have lower returns and higher risk. That is the nature of the beast. Fortunately, nobody's putting a gun to your head. That would be terrible, right? Uh, and, and force you to follow the hedge of fun herd. In fact, you don't even have to think about spotting tops and bottoms by gauging sentiment if you don't want to. There are a lot of different ways to invest. Some of them take less work than others. For example, there's timing. Now, you could try to call every gyration in every average, okay? Buying stocks when they look poised for a near-term bottom and then selling them when they look toppy. You can trade around the core position. You can take a large holding and then you can lighten up on the part, uh, on part of it uh, when it gets overextended and buy it back when the stock sells off. You can keep your bat on your shoulder, waiting for the perfect moment, where the whole market sells off dramatically, giving you a chance to buy your favorite stocks for much less than they're worth. Now, back of my little hedge fund, I love doing this stuff. If you've got the time, the inclination, the right resources, it's a terrific way to try to make money. But if you've got a full-time job, this whole approach is lunacy. And I say that, I say that as someone who knows a lot about crazy. Regular people who work for a living don't have time to stare at the tape all day. Even if you work the night shift, it's not a good use of your precious free time. More importantly, it's not worth the agitation. And that's why I come here every night to do the show. I focus on the market like a hawk so that you can take a less intense approach to investing, one that lets you go to work and have a personal life. So how should you approach the market if you're not prepared to devote your entire waking life to watching stocks? What's the safest way to handle individual stocks part-time? For starters, let me just say again that index funds are a wonderful thing. Wouldn't it be great if anyone says, oh, Jim doesn't like index funds? I can point to this show and just say, did you like, listen to it and say 40,000 times? If at any point what I'm describing sounds too daunting or just too time consuming, don't hesitate to say individual stocks are not for me. Throw your hands up and just put most of your mad money, the cash you invest with uh, that's not part of your retirement portfolio, into a nice, low cost index fund or ETF that mirrors the SP 500. I tell you this is a lot. I tell you this a lot because it, it's good advice. Being a savvy stock investor takes work. Being a savvy index fund investor, it is easy, or well, relatively so. Sure, if you manage your portfolio well, if you do the homework and stay disciplined, I think you can beat the SP 500 with a diversified group of indifferent stocks. I've seen it happen hundreds of times. But not everybody has that kind of time, not everybody has the temperament, not everybody is comfortable taking one more risk to chase a higher return. And that's perfectly fine. You need to do what is right for you. So keep that index option in your back pocket. Assuming you really do want to try to profit from individual stocks. Let's talk about how you can do that without the market taking control of your life and just constantly living in a ball of worry and confusion. First, from the get go, you need to accept that the best is enemy of the good. There's no point in trying to buy or sell stocks at the perfect moment. Nobody's that talented. Even making the attempt will drive you nuts. You need to accept results that are good enough rather than trying to chase perfection. For example, if a stock like you like gets hammered down, let say from 60 to 50, and then you pull the trigger, but then it goes down another couple of points before it bottoms and rebounds to 60, don't kick yourself for making a mistake. You didn't screw up. You made a great bet. You could have made a couple extra points if your timing had been flawless, but a win is a win, people. Second, regular viewers know that I don't believe in buy and hold. Now, wait a second. Kramer's breaking the orthodoxy? No. I believe in buy and homework. Buy and hold, to me, is reckless. Buy and homework is prudent, meaning you need to keep researching your companies if you own a piece of them. And if something goes wrong, totally wrong, you got to bail. I think it's a good idea to buy stocks slowly on the way down and sell them gradually on the way up. All of that requires a certain amount of active management, but don't feel compelled to be too active the last thing you need is to be flitting in and out of stocks with every gyration in the border market. I don't want that. You want to be an investor, not a trader. You think you can time things perfectly and flit in and out, but most gains occur in concentrated bursts, and you're liable to miss them if you're on the sidelines. Again, if you've got the time and the inclination to trade, that's great. However, most people don't. When you've got a full-time job and you're trying to manage your own portfolio, you have to be willing to sit tight. There will be sell-offs. There will be rotations out of one group and into another. There will be crazy action on a week-to-week and even day-to-day basis. You don't have to constantly adjust your holdings based on those moves. That would be wrong. If you believe in the stocks you own and you shouldn't own anything you don't believe in, just sell them, then you should be willing to stick with them when the backdrop gets tough. You can't just bail. Ideally, you would be able to trade in and out, but like I told you, the best is the enemy of the good. Don't chase perfection. In practice, when everybody's panicking over the latest crisis, you're going to be tempted to just sell everything. And you might even avoid a substantial decline by bailing on the stock market. But sooner or later, you have to get back in. The whole point of sidestepping the decline is how to sell high and buy low. Unfortunately, it's really hard to nail the timing here. If you dump everything, there's no guarantee you'll be able to buy your stocks back before something changes and the market comes roaring back, something we saw, by the way, in the spring of 2019. After Fed Chief Jay Powell told us some rate cuts might be on the horizon. Wow. Okay, Uh, that would breathe new life into the economy. So what's the solution? If you don't want to give yourself a panic attack every day, Keep doing the homework so you know what you own. When your stocks surge higher, use that opportunity to ring the register on part of your position and raise some cash. After a 20% move or more, you need to take something off the table. That's my ironclad rule, a little something, okay? When your stocks get hit, put that cash to work, buying more shares at lower prices. But you don't have to nail every short-term top and bottom. That's too darn hard. Bottom line, to trade or not to trade, that is the question. If you're trying to be an investor who doesn't need to uh, stare at the tape all day long, it's nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. You don't need to be perfect at managing your money. You just need to be good enough. And that means you shouldn't waste your time trying to anticipate every little gyration in the market. It's too darn difficult and will rarely prove to be worth it. Let's speak to Ryan in New Jersey. Ryan. Hey, booyah, Jim. How are you doing?
3: I am doing well. Thank you. How about you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm, I'm looking to invest my first $20,000. I know that putting the first 10 into an S&P 500-based index fund is a smart move, but I'm wondering what to do with the other 10. Um, I don't have time to do my homework. I'm wondering if, it, <laughs> if it's a good move to go with index funds and ETFs for the yeah, other 10. Sam, if
1: you do not have time, you must And I don't want those small sector ETFs. I prefer a total return fund that has all sorts of stocks or a fund that has a high growth. I don't want it sector by sector because those funds tend to not make people money because people buy them high and sell them low. Let's go to Riley in Georgia. Riley. Yes, sir. Thank you for taking my call. You are the man. Oh, thank you.
3: Uh, Yes, sir. I was just asking, what kind of percentage would you recommend of gold in your portfolio? I think think 10 percent
1: is fine. I know that it's been terrible, uh, but you know, you just like insurance. You don't you don't want insurance to pay off, do you? It's insurance and nothing else. All right, don't try to anticipate every gyration in the market. Just do the homework on what you own. There's much more mad your ahead. Nothing generates enthusiasm for the stock market like a newly minted company. But I'll tell you why you should proceed with caution the next time you see a company coming public. Plus, being at the right place at the right time is essential in investing. I'm showing you why. But first, shh, hear that? It's the tape talking. I'll help you separate the signal from the noise. So stay with Kramer. the stock market talks to me and i mean that figuratively not literally i mean contrary to what you may have heard on twitter i do not hear voices although periodically i think that my left molar crown does play some music But that's not what we're talking about here. I'm constantly listening to the tape, not music, to get a read on what the big institutional money managers are up to. And to do that, I need to separate the signal from the noise. Okay, what do I mean by that? Uh, On any given day, there might be monster moves in individual stocks. It's tempting to assume that all these swings are equally significant. So when you see the cloud stocks get killed, your natural conclusion to draw is that something must be wrong with the cloud. When a really loathed group bounces, it's not much of a stretch to assume that maybe the pain is at last over. But that's just too easy, people. The truth is, some of these moves are a signal, and some of them are noise. Signal means something. It tells you that the stock will probably keep moving the same direction. Noise, on the other hand, is uh, noise. To borrow a line from one of my favorite characters, Macbeth, noise is a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. In other words, while a signal carries a message, there's no real takeaway from noise. In another life, Shakespeare would have been just a might investor. Distinguishing the one from the other is as much an artist as science. So how do you tell when a major stock swings uh, really hurled something larger or should be ignored? Before we get into what makes a move meaningful, you need to understand that we get major single-day advances and declines with no real significance all the time, although we try to read some into it. Good stocks can get ahead of themselves rallying too far too fast before selling off. The technical term for this is called overbought. And chartists measure it with the slow stochastic oscillator or the Williams percentage R oscillator. We talk about these on Tuesdays and off the charts. When you're overbought, It means pretty much everybody who wants the stock at a given level has already purchased it. Even the highest quality company can have an overbought stock. And when you run out of buyers, you almost always get a pullback. But this kind of overbought sell-off doesn't tell you anything, other than the fact that the stock in question needed to take a breather and digest the gains. At the same time, even bad stocks can rally, and for similar reasons. If they get oversold because they've come down too quickly, you need to get a nice oversold bounce. Once again, though, this is the sort of rally that doesn't convey much information. It's technical. It's noise. A stock got oversold. It bounced. And unless something else changes, it can go right back down once it works off that bounce. That's that thing you see uh, head and shoulders go down and down with some ridges. I bring this up because when you see dramatic swings in individual stocks, your mind will try to draw a conclusion and it connects to the fundamentals. The real world facts about how the underlying companies actually do it. You think that somehow they relate. Sometimes that connection does genuinely exist. Other times, the action in the stock is noise, not a signal. And you'll end up feeling very foolish if you take your cue from that kind of action. Those who want to know more about this can go back to the canon on stock markets right here. Wow. Early release, no doubt. Confessions of a Street Act Tells All. It's where I describe how easy it is to see a stock move a point and convince yourself something's really happening underneath. I describe a move of a point, an anatomy of one-point gain. You will love it. All that really happens is that you have more buyers than sellers at a given moment in a way that may be totally unrelated to the actual company. Disturbing, don't you think? So. Of course, it's not just the technicals. There are plenty of other reasons why a stock might explode higher melt down, that have nothing to do with the fundamentals at all. Sometimes the market simply makes a mistake, and that mistake gets rolled back. No greater significance. I want you to consider for a moment the cloud computing stocks after Salesforce, the most majestic of the cloud kings, told us to be acquiring Tableau software symbol data for an enormous premium in an all-stock transaction. At first, the pin action... From the Tableau deal was very positive. Investors figured that all the other cloud players might be a potential takeover targets too. ServiceNow, Workday, Adobe, Koopa Software, Twilio, Okta, Zscaler, Zendesk—they all roared higher on rampant takeover speculation. However, the very next day, the cloud stocks came right back down. I mean, they were really obliterated because, surprise, surprise, the Salesforce Tableau tie-up was more of a one-off transaction. Salesforce needed a data analytics platform and they had a unique opportunity here, which is why they agreed to pay such a huge premium. They had cloud data analytics. Well, Salesforce wanted them. When Wall Street realized that the other cloud plays probably weren't going to be bought anytime soon, their stocks just plummeted. <laughs> Oh, a brutal day. And once again, it meant nothing. The only takeaway from that cloud pullback was that they never should have been up in the first place because the tableau news was, again, sui generis, as we would say at law school. So what kind of action carries real significance? How do you know when a big move is foreshadowing something even bigger? All right. There's a lot of signal that's obvious. A company reports a blowout quarter and its stock goes Obvious. An analyst cuts estimates. Stock plummets. Obvious. That's just business as usual. And it's why I like to look for the unusual. A company catches an analyst downgrade and the stock goes up? Ooh, interesting signal. Counterintuitive. In my experience, when a stock refuses to go lower on bad news, it often means that stock is putting in a significant bottom and it's ready to rocket higher. I like that. By the same token, when a company reports a fantastic quarter with great guidance and bullish conference call, yet the stock gets slammed? Oh, boy. Sell, 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 sell. sell, sell. It means Wall Street believes that this company is looking at its last good quarter. That happens very often. When your stock falls on positive news, i got to tell you something. That is the definition of a possible top. For the most part, though, you can't decipher hidden messages in, in the way stocks are trading, except in some rare cases you probably shouldn't even try. It's important to know what's working and what's not working in any given manner, in any given market. But you can't let your money management decision be, complete, be completely guided by what's in or out of style on the Wall Street fashion show. I always tell you that. Otherwise, you end up owning stocks just because they're going higher. Oh, that's a terrible place to be because you don't know what to do when they inevitably start coming down. The bottom line. When you're evaluating a stock, take your cue from the fundamentals of the underlying company. Don't put too much significance on day-to-day gyrations in the share price. Sometimes you get, you can extrapolate a great deal from a big move in an individual stock, but more often it's telling you something you already know, or it's just noise that means nothing. Let's go to Dell in Florida. Dell! Booyah, Kramer. First time, long time here from the University of Florida.
2: Whoa, love that. Go Gators. Hey, yeah. Hey, in your book, Real Money, you say that a company doing it in the whole secondary is not one you want to be invested in. So I'm wondering, is this rule without exception, or are there circumstances where it's okay for a not-yet-profitable company to do a secondary offering and expand while they can?
1: If there's a particular piece of news that is driving the stock up, and it's really positive news, and they do a secondary, I might get behind it on a little case-by-case. Case. But typically, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm, sus- I'm suspicious, I'm critical, and that's the way to play it. How about Aditya in Ohio? Aditya.
2: Booyah, Jim. Booyah. I'm a long-time listener, and I appreciate you taking my call.
1: Oh, come on, you, I love it.
2: What's going on?
3: <laughs> so you always suggest uh, owning index funds in a portfolio. Absolutely. And my, my question for you is two-part. One, what percentage of my portfolio should be in index funds versus individual equities? And number two... You also suggest owning index funds that track the S and P. Do you also indi- also suggest that you should own sector-related index funds in addition to a general S and P, for example, in healthcare? Right.
1: No, I definitely don't want sector related. I think that those are wrong. I want the full panoply. That's why I like the S P 500. I think that it should be 85 to 90 percent index fund. The rest is your mad money for individual stocks that you can still make a lot of uh, make a lot of money in. But no, index funds are the bedrock. I wish it weren't the case, but you know what? I gotta be worried too. I do think individual stocks with a lot of homework can make you more money. though. All right? Fundamentals matter, not day day moves. There's much more Mad Money ahead. I'm offering a word of warning for the next time we see a big wave of upcoming IPOs. Oh, you're not going to want to miss this. Then you may want to do the right thing, but if it's for the wrong reason, uh well, it'll cost you. I'll explain. And I'm taking your questions tweet by tweet. So send them my way with hashtag Mad Tweets and stay with me. Jim Kramer, you're one of my heroes.
0: I look forward to your show every weeknight. Thank you so much for helping beginning investors like me.
2: When you talk about the market, I just believe that you're spot on. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much. Every night we watch you, I have learned and earned.
1: All night, I've been warning you about the dangers of being a follower. When everybody expects the same outcome uh, in the stock market, there's a very good chance it won't play out as expected because it's already priced in. That's why you need to be extra wary of the IPO cycle. We've seen this pattern over and over and over again. We get a delusion of new deals. At first, many of them explode higher. They're terrific. At the same time, they're flooding the market with new stock supply, and that supply ultimately drags us down. I've said it a million times. The stock market it's like any other market. It's all about supply and demand. Too much supply and prices are going to go lower. The problem is when IPOs are making people fortunes, well, you know what? You tend to get a palpable sense of exuberance. Then when the deals start attracting less interest, the exuberance turns to hostility and then we get slammed. we see this happen so many times. Look okay, recently, 2019, uh, the latest IPO case. Uh, one that was spearheaded by Levi's, a deal that worked very well but then gave way to the likes of Lyft and Uber, two highly anticipated ride-sharing services that really burned their initial public investors. Once people started souring on IPOs, the market sold off hard in May of 2019. That was a brutal month. It didn't help that President Trump, of course, ratchet up the intensity of his trade war with China. And while the pain didn't last, it's it's something you could have avoided if you listen to me ranting and raving about how the massive Uber deal would be like an albatross around the market's neck. What makes the IPO cycle so dangerous? Let's look back at 2014 because that's the best recent example of what could go wrong. In the first quarter of 2014, the market was overwhelmed with a wave of new deals in two particular industries, the cloud-based software stocks, as is, well, those, those are the SaaS, software as a service, and the biotechs. Now, in January, of February, uh, January and February 2014, these newly minted software as a service stocks and biotechs kept roaring higher and higher. But as the IPO floodgates opened, it's, I started to get concerned. You see, in a real bubble, the kind that can devastate a decent portion of your portfolio, you'll often get a slew of, in, of initial public offerings as companies try to cash in on the euphoria of the public markets. It's natural. But as this process goes on, the companies coming public uh, tend to decline in quality. Until near the end of the move, we're scraping the bottom of the barrel. Uh, by the way, that's what we saw play out, you know, actually in the big one, in the big one, the technology stocks of 2000, as tons of profitless dot coms rushed to come public. And we saw something similar in the first quarter of 2014, as profitless software as a service companies did the same thing. Of course, we had also a lot of secondaries. Those were bad. That's why I came out here and warned you about the dangers of IPO mania. I said that there was one sure far away to wound a bull market, and that's by flooding with lots of new supply. Again, when tons of companies start coming public, we basically get a supply glut in the stock market. At the time, I told you money managers would have to start selling the older, more established software as a service companies like Salesforce in order to raise cash to keep participating in these fresh face IPOs. And I also warned you that eventually this IPO bubble would burst. Sure enough, the bulk of the stocks that came public in 2014 with huge spikes ended up losing fortunes in the aftermarket, and it took many of them years to recover. You had to be very selective at the time because most of those stocks were coming public with incredibly stretched valuations, even as they didn't have any earnings and in some cases didn't even have any revenue. The actual winners were few and far between. The dross vastly outweighed the rare nuggets of gold. That's what happened with IPO overload. It always happens like that. Even the best cloud stocks that came public in 2014, the ones that are now cloud royalty, took a long time to bounce back from that IPO overload. Don't forget, hundreds of really low-quality companies that came public in the 2000 era ultimately went bankrupt. 2014 wasn't nearly as bad, but it still caused a brutal downturn in the cloud and biotech stocks. And, of course, we saw the same thing in 2019. Sure, there were winners like Right Out of the Gate, Beyond Meat, uh, Zoom Video. But for every IPO that worked, there was another one that quickly fell out of style with the Wall Street fashion show, the Ubers and the Lyfts, and, of course, most of the Chinese IPOs, which are always extra risky because China doesn't seem to have the same rigorous corporate governance standards that we do. The other big problem, when portfolio managers get excited about putting a lot of money to work in new IPOs, they need to raise that money by Selling something else, and when there are lots of large deals, they need to do a lot of selling. So companies in related industries tend to become sources of funds. And if you believe you're going to make a killing in an IPO, you don't really care how you raise that money. This leads to fund managers who are desperate to raise cash, which means they don't care about being disciplined, but they're selling because well, prices are relevant to them, and that's what helped fuel. The market-wide weakness in May of 2019, right around the huge Uber IPO, just like it did in 2000, just like in 2014. Remember, the bulk of the new money that comes into the market goes into index funds now. And they can't participate in IPOs because these stocks aren't in the indices yet. The actively managed funds uh, that participate in these deals in, in the aggregate, well, they don't have enough cash coming in over the transom. Uh, To get into all these big deals without selling something first. So the next time you have a big wave of initial public offerings coming, I need you to remember that it pays to be cautious when the IPOs are coming hot and heavy. The bottom line, as much as I love anything that generates enthusiasm for the stock market, and you know that, and nothing does like IPOs, you have to be extra careful when we get a whole wave of new issues. The IPO cycle tends to start out strong and generate a lot of euphoria. But then it burns out and all the new stock supply can really weigh on the market. Just keep that in mind the next time you get excited about a bunch of red hot deals. And stick with Kramer.
2: Jim Kramer, you're one of my heroes.
0: Alex to your show every weeknight. Thank you so much for helping beginning investors like me.
2: When you talk about the market, I just believe that you're spot on. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much. Every night we watch you, I have learned and earned.
1: When you're picking socks, you need to be very careful about doing the right thing for the long reasons. This happens more often than you'd expect. Okay, let's say you find a great company, well-managed, strong fundamentals, good dividend. You buy that company's stock, and that stock goes up. It's only natural to conclude that it's going up for all the reasons you liked about it in the first place. But you see, that's not always true. You might think a win is a win, but it's more complicated than that. If you don't understand why a stock is moving up or down, you're probably going to be very confused when it stops doing that and goes in the opposite direction. And when we're confused... You make really lousy decisions. For example, there are a bunch of excellent, well-run, consumer packaged goods companies. Maybe you want to buy some Clorox or some Procter & Gable. There are lots of logical reasons to like them both. But like I told you earlier, logic is rarely what drives the stock market on a day-to-day or minute-to-minute basis, of course. So suppose you pick up some Clorox because you really believe in CEO Ben O'Dour and his team, or you like the dividend and the growth of the dividend, or you think that plastic and fuel costs are going to go down, which will boost the company's gross margins. You buy the stock and then it explodes higher. What's next? You have to ask yourself why it's rallying. It's very easy to tell yourself, I nailed it. This market is finally giving Clorox the credit it deserves. When you buy a stock and it goes up, that means you were right. Why would you second guess yourself when you're right? Because maybe you were just lucky. As I told you before, it's better to be lucky than good. So when you rack up a nice win in a Clorox or a Proctor, you need to ask yourself if you were right or if you simply happened to be in the right place at the right time. Well, what do I mean by the right place, right time? Rotation, rotation, rotation. There are times when the consumer packaged goods stocks roar higher for reasons that have nothing to do with the underlying companies. Clorox and Procter are recession stocks. Because their earnings tend to hold up during a slowing economy, their stocks roar when we get lousy economic data. If you buy these stocks because you believe in the business, but then they go higher as part of a sector rotation, that has nothing to do with the business. Well, you still have a win. The bank isn't going to tell you that you can't take that money because they don't accept profits from rotations. But you don't want to get caught with your pants down because the market suckered you into believing the Clorox was going up based on the fundamentals, when really it was benefiting from rotation of the whole consumer package goods sector. This is what I meant earlier about filtering out the signal from the noise. And I know it's really hard to do. Why? Because of confirmation bias. When you have a thesis and new evidence seems to prove your thesis correct, the natural thing is to believe you were right all along. You should approach that feeling with skepticism. Maybe you're right. People are right about stocks every day. But maybe it's just a coincidence and you should ring the darn register before the coincidence goes away. Here's the bottom line. It's very helpful to understand why a stock you like is going up or down. When you have a win, don't lazily assume that simply got it, he got it right. Think about what it means if you were merely in the right place at the right time. And proceed with caution. Stay with Kramer. You know I love hearing from you, America. so let's take some tweets. First up, we have a tweet from at Amy Calandro, and she says, thanks for the shout out on the show tonight, at Jim Cramer, at Mad Money on CBC. My hub's at Phil Calandro, and I have big news. What's the first thing we should invest in for our first child? Some say a college savings plan is first. What would you agree? Would you agree? Hashtag future Mad money fan on the way. Uniform gift to minors, people. That's what you should do. I think uniform gift to minors is a great way to put money away. Uh, and then, look, add a stock to the mix only to teach a child, what a stock is. Or right, here's a tweet from Steve Radley, who says, Hey, it's Jim Cramer. What if you start buying into, uh, into your position, but the stock jumps before you've bought your entire position, target position? Do you still keep buying? Hashtag mad tweets at man money on CBC. No, that's what it is called you missed it. Uh, but it's a high-quality problem. You bought some stock, and now as it goes up, you sell it. It's a shame. I know we should always—we don't want to buy and then have it run away from us. That's the big flaw in my plan of buying down in a pyramid style. It happens, but if that's the flaw, that you made money, hey, count me guilty. Next is tweet from at Mickey, Mikey Arch 61, who says, at you, Grammer, at you, Kramer, Jim, huge fan. Our first grandchild, Declan Ryan, was born in November, and we plan to continue to buy gold bullion on his behalf, but would love one or two, uh, long-term growth stocks, ETFs, mutual funds that you would recommend that we might start him off with. Well, obviously, I'm going to start with an index fund, but then I'm also going to say, look, uh, McDonald's, Disney, McDonald's, I know some people don't like the, you know, the fast food, whatever, but it's where you're going to take them. And that's where I think it just happens to be the case. Maybe you're the vegan that never lets it happen. I want kids to understand what stocks are. So you have to buy them something that resonates in their life. Hey, maybe you love a pizza. OK, Domino's. Here we have a tweet from Bender Forrest ESQ, who says, I've heard you talk about your father many a time over the years, Mr. Kramer, and the love in your heart for him is always evident. I am sure he was a very proud father. My father worked very hard all his life. He worked until he was 92 when he passed away. He worked even the last month before he died. He instilled in me an attitude of, let's just say, toward uh, you, as long as you're honest, things paid off in this country. That's what he said over and over and over again. Honest and hardworking people pay off, get paid off in this country. I believe that. I know that such a thing as luck. But he instilled in me a desire to work really hard, and here I am. All right, next up we have a tweet from at John underscore Perkowski who says that man money on CBC hashtag man tweets. I'm a grandfather of four, you lucky guy. I have the ability to do this. Is it a good investment idea to give my grandkids all under 10 about 5K and some solid broad based funds such as Russell 2000 index? You are the man. That's exactly what you should do, and uh, you're very thoughtful, and that's going to pay off in space for your, for your grandchildren. Our next tweet is from at CREJ. Hr one complicated, who says, action and Kramer, Kramerica, gets a call out in every show. But don't forget the loyal comedians Kram, who oh, I like that, the comedians who also follow your every move from here in the hashtag Great White North. Devoted fans all. I tried to buy land in Canada once. I was not able to. Drives me crazy to this day, because I love Canada so much, and you are our best friends, and we Americans will never forget it. Stick with I'm opening up the lines to hear from you, the voices of Kramer, because it's an uncertain time. I want to talk to you. Mr. Kramer, I just want to tell you, you are absolutely,
2: positively fantastic. Thanks for helping us not panic in times like this. The average investor, which we all know and love, you cater to us, and we appreciate that for all you teach us.
3: I am not going anywhere. You shouldn't either. We will get through this together. Kramer has your back. Call 1-800-743-CNBC and let's take on the market together.
1: We're going to figure this out. We'll puzzle it over and we'll
3: make it so that we're all smarter.
1: I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer and I will see you next time.